Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, 2,000 years removed from this letter, asking for the same grace and the same peace, for we need it. We long for Christ to be our all in all, and yet our hearts testify otherwise. We long to know the sweet grace that comes from communing with you, most glorious Father. We desire the peace that you offer through the blood of Christ, that we might be sons and daughters and live our lives in accordance with that truth. We do not deserve this grace or this peace, but you offer it freely. And so we come with open hands, and I pray open hearts to receive it in joy. Be gracious with us this morning and these next several weeks as we look at your holy word. Father, we want to hear you. We want to hear you tell us about your son, Jesus. We want him to be our vision so that we can go through this day and the next living as a holy people, as saints set apart for your glory. I know, Father, that many have gathered this morning with broken hearts, some with hardened hearts, some with hearts that need to be encouraged. Be gracious with us this morning. Work on everyone. Do a mighty work by your Holy Spirit here in this place and in your church throughout the world today. Let the gospel be proclaimed. Let the word go out and then be glorified in it all, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. The letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. We have not been in a letter in some time. And I'm thankful to be back. We're going to start this Sunday a multi-week series in this incredible letter. It's only four chapters, and yet it is packed. It reveals to us many things. The supremacy of Jesus Christ above all else, which is what I hope you enjoy most in our study. It reveals to us the relational standing we are to have in Christ as sons and daughters, as those who love him. And I, I usually don't do this, but I thought it would be wise to give you reasons why I chose Colossians. Um, outside of it being the Word of God, and we are to proclaim the full counsel of God, and outside of it being in the New Testament, and we were in the Old Testament, and a different genre, I'm going to just give you four that came to my mind in light of our studies in Ecclesiastes. We saw in Ecclesiastes we live in an age of hyper-skepticism. Colossians will address that. When a culture doubts everything, including life after death and the spiritual realm, God comes along and he reveals to us in Colossians that Jesus Christ has authority over all things, spiritual, material, all eternity. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, his son by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, all things created through him and for him. And so the skeptic can be grounded in Jesus Christ. And the questions about life after death, God wants to make certain as well. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, we, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Certainty. My beloved, not skepticism, 
is what God wants us to hear in this glorious letter. Secondly, we live in a time that most would agree is anti-authority, where rebellion against the established order is virtuous because it is rebellious, especially when it comes to rebelling against religion. Our our culture embraces a thinking that every man has the right to choose what he believes about God, who his God is, how he worships that God, and what his understanding of life and death is. And to question a man's belief or to offer up a single way or a supreme authority is considered by many hateful and intolerant. And yet you will find in this letter over the next several weeks that Jesus Christ is identified by God as the preeminent one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. He is supreme. He is the creator. And Paul tells us in Colossians 1.17, he is the sustainer of all things in whom all things hold together. To rebel against the authority of Jesus Christ is to rebel against the one who made you. It is to rebel against the one who sustained you. And we would argue is ultimately foolish. The third thing that came to mind is that we live in a cultural moment that has become extremely pragmatic. We want to see results. We will participate in religion if we think that religion can actually benefit us in some real practical way. We want to see a desired end come about. And the same should be asked of Christianity. Will a saving faith in Jesus Christ save my life? Will I have peace? Will I know joy? Will I have purpose and meaning in life? Colossians chapter 3, we're offered this, harmony and peace. Paul says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts. We have harmony. We have peace. We have purpose in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And if you know Christ, you have joy. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Him. Satisfaction and joy that knows no bounds. So we can say that Christianity is extremely pragmatic when it comes to real change in a person's life. I'll give you one more. We live in an age of relational dysfunction. Roles in the home, roles in the workplace, roles in society have either been questioned or turned upside down. My beloved, when we as a culture are confused about gender, when we cannot get male and female right, And our courts must deliberate on cases of marriage, bathroom usage, and how we we actually define personal pronouns. We know that the culture is confused when it comes to right relational roles. Colossians breathes a breath of fresh air into how we relate to one another. And it shows us how to know, have, and enjoy right, real relationships with God with our husbands and wives, with our children, with our friends, and with the lost world. In these areas and so many more, Colossians does this. It brings real answers and a real hope in the eternal, timeless person of Jesus Christ. The answer is Christ. We will see by God's grace over the next several weeks that Jesus provides certainty for the skeptic, order for the unruly, transformation of heart and mind for the pragmatic, and above all else, a relationship with the living God. A relationship with the living God that if you know through Jesus Christ will change all of the relationships. Not only redefine you as a husband or a wife or son or a daughter, as a co-worker or a friend, but it will fill you with a joy and a satisfaction so deep and so real that you will long every moment of every day for Jesus Christ to be your vision. So, with that prolonged introduction, and I know that's long for me, um, let's, let's do some groundwork today. It's a, it's a bit of a strange sermon. I want to introduce the book. 
and I, and I need to introduce it because we can't understand. You can't really approach Scripture well unless you have proper context. And you can't read a letter like this well unless you know certain things. Who wrote the letter? Who was it written to? What was the purpose of the letter? And so I, I want to do that this morning with your patience and God's grace. I want to look at, one, the context of the letter, number two, the purpose of the letter, and number three, the person of the letter. The context, the, pers- the purpose, and the person. So let's do that. Let's look at the context first. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. If you do not have your Bible open, please do so. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul begins with a normal greeting, but within this greeting, we get the entire foundation upon which the letter is based. First of all, we know who the author is. It is none other than the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, you, you might hear that word apostle, and it's been familiarized to you. I don't want it to be. The word apostle in the Greek apostolos is simply a messenger. But this is no ordinary messenger. This is a messenger of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul's not speaking as a rabbi, he's not speaking as a philosopher, he's speaking as a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ because God has so ordained it. And that means that what he has written is not his opinion. He is speaking on behalf of God. He did not attain the position, this position of power and authority as an apostle by his works or his training. He was not nominated to it. He was not elected to it. He did not attain it by aspiration. God came, as you know, on the road to Damascus and made the man blind. And he said, you will follow and serve my son. And so I want you to hear this letter, every single word of it, as words of God. Because it is. That's why we study it. That's why we preach it. That's why we teach it. That's why we memorize it. Not because they're Paul's words, but they're God's words given to Paul to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. So let's set the foundation here. When I said, when I say the Apostle Paul said, he's speaking on behalf of Christ by the will of God. So you need to hear God said. Amen? Secondly, along with his faithful servant, Timothy, we know who Paul was writing to, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers. Now, when most Americans hear the word saint, you think Catholic church, and you think of the 3,000 or so people over the centuries who have been canonized by the Catholic church. You think of St. Benedict. You think of St. Mary. You think of St. John Paul II. Most of those individuals are given sainthood because of their supposed goodness. But it's interesting. In the Greek, the word saint has no moral attachment to it. It simply means set apart. It simply means to be separated from. And so in this light, we can say that all Christians are, in fact, saints of God. They've been set apart by God for God. Not a morally superior people but followers of Jesus Christ because God has made us so. Not because of our moral goodness or our personal righteousness, because God, according to His sovereign will, has decided to take some of us out of the darkness and bring us into the light of His Son. He has separated us from the world. This is who Paul's writing to. The saints and faithful brothers and sisters, those set apart, and those faithfully following Jesus Christ, walking in the ways of our Lord. And they're identified, I love it here, they're identified specifically as a local membership, a covenant community, those in Colossae. He wasn't writing to the church in Laodicea, or Hierapolis, or Ephesus. He was writing to a specific group of people who had gathered together and made a covenant with one another to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. This city, Colossae, we know a couple things, not a lot. It's old. We know it because it goes back to the time of Xerxes, the Persian, the Persian uh, emperor in the 5th century. So it goes way back. Um, those who occupied it at the time of Paul, modern-day Turks, it's in Turkey today, 
but it would have been that same ethnic group, certainly um, Greeks and, and a significant number of Jews. It's located in modern Turkey, what we call Asia Minor. And some of you who know your, your Bible map, it was 120 miles east of Ephesus and only 10 miles southeast of Laodicea. And so it was actually, it occupied this tri-city area of Laodicea, uh, Hierapolis, and Colossae. You might not know this, Paul did not found this church. Nor had he, we believe, ever visited the church. It was found when Epaphras and Philemon and Aphia and Archippus visited Paul when he was in Ephesus for three years. And they came and they heard the gospel of grace. They heard Paul's teaching. They repented. They believed and they went back. And they started churches in Laodicea, Hierapolis, and in Colossae. And Epaphras, most of you probably know, was one of the most significant leaders. We'll see him again in chapter 4. So we know the author and we know the audience. This covenant community of believers in Asia Minor who have Epaphras as their pastor. But why the letter? Why don't we have a letter to Hierapolis? Why do we have a letter to Colossae? Why did Paul write it in the first place? At the end of his third missionary journey, he went from Ephesus. He had spent three years there, and he was going to take an offering to the poor in Jerusalem. And so he went from Ephesus to Greece. He spent a winter in Greece riding. And then in the spring of 58 or 59, the Apostle Paul made his way to Jerusalem. And we know what happens there. He's arrested. And from that point on, he will spend the next four years in prison, two years in Caesarea, and then two more years in Rome. It's in Rome that we get the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians. And so this letter being written by the Apostle Paul was being written while he was under house arrest in Rome. But that doesn't answer the question, why did he write it? What prompted him to write a letter to a church he did not plant and to a church that he never visited? Look at verse 2 again. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We read that as a, a normal greeting, and it's, it's common for Paul to use that. But I would argue, and I will try, that at the very heart of this greeting is what Paul wants the Colossians to know and understand and live out. Grace and peace. The grace that Paul extends as a messenger of Jesus Christ is God's sovereign, free grace of love in Jesus. He is saying, I want the grace of God to overcome you. I want it to overpower you. I want you to know that you have favor with the Most High because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Sounds like a good series, doesn't it? Thank you for laughing. Grace to you and then peace from God our Father. Peace. Now, Paul would have used a term that would have been understood in the Hebrew as shalom. And most of you know this term. And it was not just a peace from conflict. This word peace that Paul is talking about, it's, it's better understood as a completeness or a total soundness, a total well-being of heart, mind, and soul in life and in death, in work and play. And so Paul is saying, may the peace of God our Father be with you. May you have total satisfaction in Him, a completeness in life, an understanding of right relationships, living in accordance with the Word of God. This peace is knowing and living in a right relationship with God and His creation. And so Paul is saying, I want you to have the grace and I want you to have the peace that transcends all understanding. And if they have that, he doesn't need to write the rest of the letter. Sometime in 63 A.D., nearing the end of Paul's prison term in Rome, Epaphras, the pastor of Colossians, took a 1,300-mile trip to go see the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't need to tell you 1,300 miles is a long way to go today. He did it in a time that it was long and dangerous. So why did he go? Why did Epaphras leave his flock in Colossae to go see the Apostle Paul? A couple reasons. He wanted to encourage Paul. 
and he does. He says, you're not going to believe the work that God is doing in our church. I mean, the Holy Spirit is moving in such a radical way. There is such great faith and such great love for one another that everybody knows that we know Christ. So he wants to encourage the Apostle Paul. But he also goes because there's a problem. There's a disruption, a murmuring that is moving, an imminent danger that is lurking at the door. And Epaphras, being the loving pastor, risks his life and this long journey to seek out the counsel of the Apostle Paul. So significant was this concern. The Apostle Paul actually writes in chapter 2, verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you. That's how dangerous these heresies were. So what were they? I mean, what was so bad at the door of the church at Colossae that Paul would say, be careful that you're not disqualified? What would cause him to write that? There, there were several strains, but I give you the two pillars that we see work their way throughout this letter. One is the heresy of philosophy or human wisdom. And we know, given the time and the location, likely influenced by Greek philosophy. Most of you know the Greeks love philosophy. They love to study wisdom and knowledge. This was very much their functional savior in life. And the cultural influence here, although predating the Gnostics by about 100 years, we see some of the same influences. And it was this. They were going to take the grace of God offered through faith in Jesus Christ and they were going to add to it philosophy, wisdom, the human traditions of men. And so Paul brings a very strong warning in Colossians 2, verse 8. Listen, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so the great danger that we see permeate all four chapters that Paul was writing to was the Colossians forsaking Christ alone forsaking the purity of the gospel alone, that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not because of your wisdom or your knowledge or your higher degrees. This was the great danger. Christ and something else. Christ and special revelation. Christ and philosophy. In fact, he talks about this in verse 18 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ and self-denial. Jesus Christ and the worship of angels. Jesus Christ and the submitting to visions and those with unspiritual minds. My beloved, listen closely. Adding anything to the perfect work of Jesus Christ will disqualify you. It is the most destructive thing that you can do. For those of you who know classical music, you know that Bach is at the top. They've tried for centuries, composers, to beat Bach. No one can beat Bach. It's an amazing thought that someone could actually write a particular piece so perfect mathematically and musically that someone says, we can't touch that. We can't add to that. If you know his Brandenburg Concerti, one through six, probably some of the greatest compositions in the history of mankind, you don't listen to them and say, you know, I could make that better. You don't. If you try, you make it worse. And you dishonor the composer and you dishonor the piece. All you do is sit and listen to the master Bach and enjoy. So too with Jesus Christ. If you try to add to the person of Jesus Christ or the work he accomplished on the cross for you, all you will do is demean and dishonor the worker, Christ himself upon the cross, and you will diminish the magnitude of the grace that flowed from his blood. It is a wicked thing to try to add to Jesus Christ and his work of grace. We will see that in this letter. The other thread of heresy actually made its way by Judaizers. Now, you know that term. The Ju a Judaizer was someone who declared themselves to be a Christian, saved by grace, but we needed additional works. We, they went back, many of them, to the traditions, the Jewish religious customs of their time and argued they too were necessary for salvation. Things like circumcision, Sabbath day observations, annual festival, cleanliness laws. Like those from Antioch, if you remember, who gathered at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This is what they said to the church. These were professing believers Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So that's Jesus Christ and Moses. That's Jesus Christ and the law. Now, the Judaizers we will see here in Colossians, they were of a different persuasion. They weren't the normal, these were not like the Judaizers that we experience in the book of Acts or in Galatians. Some argue that they came from the Essenes, and the Essenes were a a Jewish sect even more extreme than the Pharisees, and they embraced what we call asceticism, self-denial, denying yourself pleasure, denying yourself, denying the body things, because they believed that the body was, was corruptible and perishable and therefore evil, and the spirit imperishable, therefore being good. And so they had all these rules. And so Paul talks about this in Colossians 2.21. Do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. These were all supplements to the faith. Things that we would add on for our salvation. Thinking somehow they believe that the deliverance that Christ offers upon the cross is not sufficient. That we need Christ and we need to make sure that we do not touch and we do not taste and we do not handle. Fundamentally, those who argue this do not argue that the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross is sufficient, that it is complete. And yet, what did Jesus say? Did he not on the cross say, it is finished, the work is done, the victory was had? Did he not say that, saints? Say amen if he did. He absolutely said that. So when he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. There is no more work necessary for a man or a woman or a child to be saved. Jesus Christ completed that work. The victory was won. This past year, when the Patriots won the Super Bowl, they did not the following day and have a practice. They didn't get out on the practice field and say, you know, we need to keep practicing to ensure that we have that victory. The victory was won. They had a parade. They celebrated. They rejoiced because they were Super Bowl champions. Complete. Christ was victorious on the cross. And if you are in Christ, you too are victorious. There's nothing to add to it. There's no need to practice your salvation. You are saved by grace through faith alone. You're going to hear me say that a lot over the next several weeks. So Epaphras, he goes to Paul to encourage him, but he also says, I got got some disturbing news. Now here's the good news, saints. According to the letter, it hadn't made its way in yet. It was at the door. It was ready to come in, these heretical teachings, these add-ons. But it hadn't made its way yet. So Epaphras, the loving pastor, he goes, I'm going to get this thing before it makes its way in and wrecks the great work that God is doing. And so Paul writes this letter. He writes the letter to encourage them. He writes the letter to praise God of the great work that God is doing. And he writes the letter to warn them not to fall into this trap. And he does it in such a beautiful way. He lifts up Christ He reveals Jesus Christ, the unequivocal, absolute, supreme Lord of the universe, and our sufficiency in Him, which takes us to really the central piece of the letter, our third point, the person. And you say, well, that's not fair, Pastor. That same person is the central part of every letter and every book and the whole Bible, and I will say yes, amen, because He is. Every letter, every gospel testimony, every song, every single piece of historical literature in the the Old Testament and New is about Jesus Christ. So how glorious that we get to spend the next several weeks talking about Him. Isn't that so much better than talking about us, talking about our struggles, what we need, how to be the better mom, a better dad, a better son, a better... Let's talk about Christ, and He will bring all this into alignment. Point number three, the person of the letter. We know the author. We know the context. We know the purpose. Let's talk about the person. Whether through empty philosophies, vain traditions, or religious rules imposed by the Judaizers, Satan used all of them for the same end and aim. And it was this. To distract the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae away from Jesus Christ. To distract believers, those saved by grace, from the person of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of grace offered in the gospel. And this is always where the attack is, is it not? On the church, in your life. If we can get, if Satan can get us, our eyes, just off Christ a little bit, 
if He can detour us from the pure, simple gospel of grace and bring add-ons and supplements to our salvation, then our eyes leave Christ and go upon man. And if Satan can do this, if he can get us to take our eyes off Jesus or, just, or think about Jesus and what we have to do, then, the, then, then somehow we participate in the salvation of ourselves and there's room to exalt. And as soon as we're there, as soon as we say it's Jesus and my wisdom, as soon as we say it's Jesus and my good works, now I have reason to boast and Satan has us because it's not all glory to God. It's God and you. It's God and me. Any movement away from our total dependence upon God the Father through Jesus Christ leads to destruction. Any movement. Did we not see this? Is this not the prevailing theme of the entire Old Testament? The people of God, worshiping God, praising God, and then bringing the idol in. Bringing the add-on. It wasn't that they said, away with Yahweh. It was Yahweh and Baal. It was Yahweh and the Asheroth. Bring them together. What happened every single time? Every single time, judgment came. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you remember this story, the Philistines overcame Israel and killed over 4,000 men. 1 Samuel 4.2. Israel was distraught. And so what did they do? They didn't go to God. They didn't petition God through prayer or fasting. They went and said, let's go get the ark. So they went to Shiloh. They grabbed the ark of the covenant, and they brought the ark into their camp. They think, the ark will save us. And so if you remember the story, when the ark comes to the camp, they cheer so loudly. The Philistines hear, and they're worried because word got back to them. The ark of the covenant of Yahweh is in their camp. And so they're terrified because they had heard all the stories. They had heard how God had gone before the people of Israel again and again and won victory after victory over some of the most formidable enemies. Now the Philistines thought to themselves, we do not want to be the servants of Israel. And so they fought even harder. And in the prevailing battle, the Philistines killed over 30,000 of Israel's infantry. Not only that, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. They took it from Israel, and both of Eli's sons died in battle. You say, well, why the defeat? What happened? I mean, weren't they petitioning God? Weren't they worshiping God? The answer, of course, is no. They had God and what? And the Ark. They brought in supplemental salvation. They brought an add-on. Instead of relying solely upon Yahweh to save them, they had Yahweh and the Ark, Yahweh and religion, and it failed them miserably, as it will us as well. So the Apostle Paul responds to these supplemental salvations, these add-ons to the Colossians with absolute brilliance. He doesn't go after the rabbit holes. If you've taken a philosophy class, you know this. There are almost an infinite number of threads that you can follow, becoming so confusing that you realize, I can't be in truth right now. Paul does not do that. He doesn't go after the, the Judaizers. He doesn't go after the, 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 the philosophy of men or the human traditions. He simply takes Christ and he exalts him. He takes Christ and he places Christ where he needs to be, high and seated upon his throne. And then he says, and this is who you are in him. What a, what a, glorious, what a glorious reorientation for us. So as we work through these heresies, we want to do what the Apostle Paul wants us to do, and that's to set our eyes on Christ and know our new life in Him. In fact, if you have your book open, look at, look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, all God and then he says in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. That could be the summary verse for the entire letter. In Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him. In other words, this Jesus Christ, who we know is Lord and Savior, who we worship, is, was, will always be fully God. All the attributes, all the characteristics of God the Father are in God the Son. So he says, Jesus Christ possessed all the attributes, and if you are in him, then what? You're what? You have been filled. You lack nothing. You lack nothing, my beloved. 
If you have Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is God, then you have God. What do you need to add to that? What do you need to add to God? What do you need to add to Jesus Christ? What can you add? If you have Him and He is God, you have everything. You lack nothing. And I love how it's past tense. You have been filled. Have been, past tense, in Christ. Flip back to chapter 1. He, he explains this a little bit more. You say, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that I could be filled? Look at verse 19. For in Him, again, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. A reaffirmation of the statement. And through him, now Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, here, here's where we come in. And you, who's Paul talking to? The saints and the faithful brothers. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus Christ, has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Oh, those are glorious words. If you are tired or you are sleepy or you are distracted, then you did not hear what I just said. Jesus Christ is God. In him, through this work, you are filled. You were once Hostile in mind, Christ reconciled you. You were an enemy of God. He brought you in through his broken body and his spilled blood, his perfect, sinless blood. You were separated. You were an enemy. And he said, no more. I will die on your behalf, and I will bring you in, and I'll bring you all the way in. He made peace with us. How does he start the letter? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The grace, what was the grace? The unmerited favor of being forgiven by God that our sins would be covered by Christ. What is the peace? This peace that we enter into a right relationship with God and be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only are we forgiven of our sins and brought into a right relationship with God, but Jesus Christ imparts to you all His righteousness, all His goodness. And that's who we are in Jesus. You have all grace and all peace. And the purpose is revealed to us here as well. Verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You're the gift. I know. That's hard to imagine. Don't feel like a very fit gift at times, do you? No. But in Christ you are. In Christ all your sins all your rebellion, all your doubt, even this morning, is covered by Christ. And you're filled in Him, and therefore He's able to bring you before God, holy and blameless and above reproach, because of Him. We need to see ourselves more like that. Because if you do, you'll know that no philosophy, no special knowledge or tradition or religious exercise is necessary and you won't try to add it on. You won't because you will say in your heart and live it out in your life, Christ is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. And you will stand on Him and Him alone. My beloved, what, what can you add to perfection? What can you add to completion? What can you add to a victory that's already been won on your behalf? Nothing. We are fools when we try. This is the answer Epaphras needed to hear as a pastor. And I have no doubt he went back and he did a series on the grace and peace of God in Colossae in 63 AD. Multi-part, no doubt. It's what the Colossians needed to hear. And you probably already know this. It's what you and I need to hear every single day. I need to hear this again and again. Christ is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. I am filled. The default of my heart, and I don't believe it's just me, 
the default of my heart is to add something. I'm always adding. I'm always engaged what I'm going to coin, and I want this phrase, supplementary salvation, a supplement to salvation. Many of you take supplements. The older you get, the more you need to. I do. I take B3, and I take D, and I take C, and I, I take all kinds of stuff. There is no supplement to your salvation in Jesus Christ. There is nothing for you to add. And this applies even to the most mature believers. Be careful that you don't say, well, I've walked with Christ for years. I know my Bible. I pray daily. Don't think that you don't try add-ons. Everybody's trying to download a salvation app of some kind all the time, thinking, if, I, if it's Christ and this, then it's better. If it's the gospel and this, then I'm more saved, more security. Some of you, it's Jesus and your marriage. You don't know that because you haven't lost your spouse yet. But when you do, if it's Jesus in your marriage, it will be bad. For some of you, it's Jesus in your children, and you don't know that because you have not lost a child yet. Still others, it's Jesus in entertainment or financial security or possessions. Now, with your mouth, you will proclaim Christ alone. And I would say even in your convictions, you will say it is Christ alone. But it's with your life that you reveal whether or not it is truly Christ alone alone. I'll give you a couple examples. If you have a good job, and a good job would be a job that is secure, that pays all your bills, so you're able to support yourself, food on the table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, supporting your family. How glorious if God has provided that for you. That is grace. But in the midst of having this good, secure job, you suffer anxiety over losing that job. And you worry on a regular basis that you're not going to be able to make ends meet. There might be layoffs or cutbacks. One might argue that your salvation is not just in Christ, but you supplemented that salvation with your work, with that blessing. Guard your heart. If you find yourself regularly angry or frustrated because things don't always go exactly as you want them to go, Life doesn't always work out exactly as you want it. And when it does not, you express that in anger or depression or frustration. It may be that you have a salvation supplement. It's Jesus Christ and my life as I want it. Subtle things. You may be more like the Judaizers. For you, it may be Christ and don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Because when you do that, it provides you an extra sense of security. Yes, I have Christ, and yes, I'm really good. And because I'm really good, I will be saved. You think that moral living, especially when compared to everybody else, and it's amazing how well we judge, isn't it? Everyone else, when we think we're moral. You think that your moral living offers you greater security in salvation in Christ. It does not. It does not. Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Remember the two, they both go up to the temple to pray. I don't think we read this parable close enough. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed this. Listen. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of, that, of all that I get. Now, we immediately think, well, this man's salvation is based upon his works, but that's not a true rendering of the text. He begins by saying, God, I thank you. Did you hear that? So we can assume he's not an extortioner, he's not unjust, he's not an adulterer, he's not like this tax collector, and he's saying, God, thank you for that. So he's actually attributing to God the very moral character that he enjoys. He said, now, wait a minute, isn't that a right thing? Aren't we supposed to praise God for the good work that he's doing? The answer is yes. But do you see the mistake that he made? He's saying God and what God has done in me. God and the means of grace working in my heart and mind. Look at the tax collector. Verse 13, this is in Luke 18. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus is saying, that tax collector saved. 
And that Pharisee is not. He said, but the Pharisee thanked God for the good in his life. Exactly. The Pharisee thanked God, put his hope in God and the work that God was doing in himself. The Pharisee hoped to be justified by God and the good work that God was doing. The tax collector simply said, what? Have mercy upon me. He just cries out to God, save me. All his hope, all his trust is in a sovereign God to save him through Christ. That's it. No add-ons. Not even the sanctification that God is doing in your heart. No add-ons. Not even the fact that you're not an adulterer like your friends and you're not an extortioner like your friends. No add-ons. That man, that Pharisee, went to his house unjustified. All right, I'll close. Whatever the supplements to your salvation are, whatever the, sa- whatever the add-ons are, by God's grace, we will see in this letter over the next several weeks that it is, as the Reformers once said, it is Christ alone. It is grace alone. It is the gospel alone. Or there's no salvation. There's no salvation if it's not Christ alone. Any supplement you add in life to aid in your being justified will be rejected by God and ultimately disqualify you. That's why we don't believe in something called co-redemptrix. We don't believe in faith and works to save us. We don't believe in faith and wisdom. We believe in Christ alone. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, period. Exclamation point. Just stop it there. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that what? No one may boast. My beloved, whatever you add on, you can boast about. If it's your wisdom, if it's your asceticism, if it's your marriage or your children, or like that Pharisee, all the good work God is doing in you, whatever you have apart from Christ, you boast in. And that is the most hideous thing we do. We steal glory from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. That's me. That's me. If you know Christ, you know that's you. He he chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. I want to be wise, but in God, not in man. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. It's Christ. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts what? Boast in the Lord. I want to boast. I want you to boast, but I want us to boast in Christ. Not anything that we've added on, no supplement to our salvation. I don't want to steal the glory from God or attempt it in any way. When we come before Christ, when He's seated high upon His throne, we will say, It's you. It's because of you. It's through you. And we'll fall down and worship. You were created. To glorify God, not steal His glory. Your purpose is to glorify Him, not take it from Him. You say, what is the greatest sin? It is that. It's you taking God's glory or attempting to do so. You cannot, but we try. And it's a most hideous thing. Imagine attending a wedding where the mother of the bride walked down the aisle to her music adorned in a wedding dress, veil, white, train. It would be the consummate of wedding etiquette faux pas, would it not? Everybody would be going, what is she doing? What was she doing? She'd be trying to take the attention away from the bride. She'd be trying to steal the glory from the bride. That's a human wedding. How much worse, my beloved, the preeminent one, How much worse to try to take glory away from Jesus Christ. It is my hope, and by God's grace will be my prayer, that our walk through Colossians will reveal these idols, their idols, 
these salvation supplements, these add-ons in our lives, and we will destroy them by grace. We will put them to death. And we will put in its place the person that Paul's writing about, Jesus Christ alone. I want our vision to be so radically Christ-centered at the end of this that any mention and any hint of any add-on or downloading of an app or salvation supplement will be rejected outright immediately. We will find it reprehensible and hideous because we will see it as glory-stealing and we will say, I will not take God's glory. It is my hope and prayer by the end of this study that your affections for Jesus and the knowledge of the Savior will soar. I want them to soar. And we see all the divine greatness of the person, the work, the position, and the power of Jesus Christ and give Him all the glory. I pray that we see the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and we worship Him alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a most high calling to come out of these next several weeks with no add-ons, to end our study in this letter that Paul wrote so long ago with Jesus Christ being our vision every moment of every day. This is a calling that we will fail in apart from your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Father, that you would empower us in your spirit to see Christ clearly, to be rightly captivated by the person and the work and the grace and the peace that has been extended to us through the cross. Please, Father, do that great work here. Leave us permanently changed. Be wonderfully pragmatic in transforming our hearts and minds. Take out the skepticism, Father, and give us the certainty of the gospel of grace. Show us, Father, right relationships that you want us to have with you and with one another in this creation. Father, I ask you to be gracious with us. We so need your grace and your peace. Open our eyes, Lord, even if it's just to give us a glimpse, for it is sufficient if we see Christ in his name. Amen.